Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. I'm your host and interviewer, Scott Miller. We're now well into our 100th episode, and today I am excited and honored to have Ed Milet as our guest. Most of you know Ed as a serial and wildly successful entrepreneur, investor, coach, model, friend, public speaker. I first met Ed at Rachel and Dave Hollis's Rise Business event in Charleston this year and guaranteed that he had to be one of our 52 interviews in 2020. Ed Milet, welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership. God, thank you so much for having me. It's, honor, it's an honor to be with you. And it's good to see you again since we met there at Rachel Hollis's event. Yeah, thanks, Ed. I'm really excited about having you on today for lots of reasons. When I was backstage in the green room getting ready to speak at Rachel Hollis's Rise event, you had just gone on stage. And I've had to be honest, this was six months ago, and I'd heard of you, but I didn't have much context for you. Hadn't read your book, Max Out Your Life, which is a great gym, short, sweet, to the point, easily, purposely written. I'll talk about it in a few moments. What I'd like to do is kind of reintroduce you to our audience. Would you take a few moments and walk our listeners and viewers from around the world and all the countries that we have offices in a bit about your own journey? Sure. Well, uh, thank you again for that great introduction. I need you more in my life. Um, I'm an average, ordinary person. I, I, uh, I, I started out as an entrepreneur. I had a really interesting transition to becoming an entrepreneur, which was that I had had a failure. My first dream ended. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. That ended. And I found myself as a young man living at home with my mom and dad in the same bed I grew up in, unemployed. And uh, like a lot of people, the negative things in my life happened for me, not to me. I believe that. One of those negatives growing up was my dad was an alcoholic. He's since sober, 33 years, my best friend. But growing up, he was a drinker. And I ended up um, staying at home with them. My dad had just gotten sober, ironically, he came back from a AA meeting and said, I got you a job tomorrow. And I said, well, what is it? As if I could be choosy. And he says, it doesn't matter what it is. I don't even know what it is, but show up at this place tomorrow called McKinley Home for Boys. I didn't know it, but it was an orphanage. So a large campus of group homes for young men that were wards of the court. Their family had been either incarcerated, passed away, or had molested them. And I got there and it absolutely changed my life. I walked into Cottage 8 as a young man. There were 12 boys in there, all eight to 10 years old. And immediately they're staring at me, getting ready for school that day. And in that moment, my life changed from being sort of all about me, being an athlete, to all about these young boys. And I became like their father, their big brother. I was there trick-or-treating. I was there Christmas day when they opened presents. Completely ill-prepared for that experience, by the way. I don't have a background in that. That wasn't my background in college. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. So I had to throw myself into it and get resourceful. But what I didn't know growing up when I was a, the son of an alcoholic, what I didn't know is all that was happening for me as well, not only to get me the job, but I could connect with these boys because I knew what it was like to grow up with anxiety and fear and worry and insecurity. And ironically, that entire upbringing prepared me for the moment to be with these precious boys and it transformed my life. I became, I found what I love to do, which is to serve other people. I never knew that before. That wasn't what I was doing playing baseball. And it transformed my life. And from there, I got recruited into the financial services company I'm still with to this day, almost 30 years later. And But I approached business from a really unique perspective, I think, which was that I really approached it from a place to serve, to contribute. Uh, because I grew up so insecure, I had to learn all these tools and strategies to, 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 to baseline self-confidence and so I became a personal developed kind of addict at the same time, which converged with business, which converged with service and 
led to some very blessed results. Ed, by nearly every measure, you are an insanely successful business person, um, including financially as well. But that's not always the case. One of the, one of the many aspects of your journey, your story I like, is the fact that you're very vulnerable. You're very transparent, very translucent about your successes and your failures. You share a story in your book, Max Out Your Life, about uh, an apartment, uh, a time in your apartment with your wife and how uh, the, everything had been shut off. But specifically, one utility had been shut off and kind of how humbling the experience was. Would you take a moment and kind of recreate that story and maybe share how that was not necessarily what happened um, to you, but happened for you and how that helped to shape your mindset? Yeah, such a great question. Um, so I met my wife in kindergarten and we dated in high school. And so I had sold her a dream of who I was going to become for many, many years. And um, I had started to make it happen. Like some, you know, not every entrepreneur has the story, but I had had a little bit of success and I had bought a home and had a couple nice cars and then things turned. I lost that home. I lost those cars. We moved into an apartment. Soon after that, the power was turned off. Once I got that turned back on, a series of events happened. And we had the one thing you don't ever want to have turned off, which was we had our water turned off. You can't cook. You can't bathe. You can't brush your teeth. And humiliated every morning, we would get up very early so that no one would see us and go down the stairs of our apartment complex. And there was an outdoor pool there. There was a shower. If you can picture that in an outdoor pool. Yeah. No no protection to look into the shower and I would stand up every morning and hold a towel up in the freezing cold while my precious bride took her shower and brushed her teeth and then she'd switch spots with me and it was emasculating and shameful and humiliating and I'd have to walk back up those stairs of that apartment and living a nightmare go out and try to sell a dream to people about who I was going to become and what I was going to do but it did happen for me and not to me for a lot of reasons. Number one, I think as a speaker and a coach, I can connect with people because I know what it's like to be so down and so destitute. And I think it probably added, I hope, some small element of humility for me that when I did have some financial blessings and success come my way, maybe I'm a little bit more grateful than I would have been had that never happened. To this day, I often say, it doesn't happen every day. You know, I try to be as honest as I can, but I'd say at least 60% of the days in the morning, if I'm at one of my beautiful homes, frankly, the most grateful part of my day is when I turn the shower on and the water comes out, hits me in the face. It's just instant trigger, instant gratitude, like thank you for that. And I think when you can be grateful for small things like that, yeah. it allows you to be grateful for the blessings when they come. I know so many people who have achieved material success that are no happier and no more grateful than they were before they had it. But that experience gives me instant gratitude at least, uh, at least half the time for sure. Ed, when I think of your brand, I think of you as a master storyteller. And uh, I think as people have become more familiar with you on podcasts and interviews and you're on the speaking circuit around the nation, people recognize that as well. I'd like you to take a few moments now and tell one of my favorite stories I've heard you tell. It has to do with um, a Mercedes Benz. I'd love you to kind of just share it in detail. Don't short circuit it because when I heard this story six months ago for the first time, I have thought about it. I have told this story at countless dinner parties because I think the beauty of the story beyond the humor is, the, is how grounded you are today with, you know, by most standards, massive financial success. Your family is still together and, and, and healthy. And I think how you tell your stories with humility is such a treat. Please recreate the Mercedes story. Thank you. Um, 
Well, you know, you make such a great point first before I tell you, but it's true about the water being turned off as well. I don't think I had not had those circumstances happen to me that I would have been afforded some element of humility. In other words, I wasn't going down that track in my life. Yeah. I was a guy who thought he was a pretty big deal when I was a baseball player, you know, and I quickly learned I wasn't. And the Mercedes story is sort of reflective of that. I wanted to be successful so badly. And I wanted to look successful so badly that I was willing to go to any measure to do it. And so I had a sales team at that time of guys I was coaching to get into the financial industry. And I felt like I needed to look like I had a nice car so that I had some results. And I wanted a Mercedes. I wanted a 500 SL convertible Mercedes, but I couldn't afford one. And I was thumbing through something called a penny saver back in the day. And they had a kit car Mercedes and kit cars are typically, they're not very good. Your normal kit car is, a fake Mercedes, and in this case, a Chrysler LeBaron, they strip the body off of it, I'm not exaggerating it, and they weld to the frame of that Mercedes, or to that LeBaron, a Mercedes body. It's a little bit too long, it doesn't quite fit, but you get the picture. On the outside is a Mercedes body, on the inside is a Chrysler LeBaron. They're very cheap, very inexpensive, and they weld these cars together. And uh, so you can get one for almost nothing, and they're, they're sort of a joke. So I found one down in Laguna Beach. I drive down there where I now live to this day. And I met a lady who had one. I think there was probably some methamphetamine involved in her life at that time. She was not on good times. And she's got this kit car, which is a joke. You, you, you have the picture. It's not quite the right size, except hers was even worse. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. This car was not welded together with a Mercedes body on a Chrysler LeBaron. It was Velcroed together. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This was a Velcroed together car. So it was an old beat up Chrysler LeBaron Velcroed onto the frame of the car, a Mercedes body. And I wanted it so bad. So I buy this thing from her. She warns me when I'm leaving, she goes, make sure when you slow down at a stoplight that you kind of ease into it because crazy things will happen. Well, little did I know that the following scenario played out for me. No, this has happened to me more than a hundred times in my life. I'm about to tell you. I would imagine me in my suit, trying to look like a young professional dude in my fake Mercedes that almost everybody knows isn't a real one. And I would roll up to a stoplight at an intersection, a busy intersection, but I'd stop a little bit too quickly and the front headlight would fly off into the intersection. <laughs> and I'd have to get out of my car, stop traffic both ways. Imagine watching this if there was social media then. So all the cars are stopped, I'm stopping traffic, I'm in an intersection, I pick up my own headlight, <laughs> I walk back and I, boom, stick it back on the Mercedes, <laughs> and I get back in my car again, humiliated as all these people are left. If this was social media, I would be the most viral person in the history of social media. I've had that scenario, Scott, happen more than a hundred times, where I had to go collect my own headlight and Velcro it back onto a car again because it was falling apart. Worse than that, if I got a little panicked and I shut the door too fast, the door would fall off the car. <laughs> and I'd have to get out and pick the door and Velcro it back on. And this culminated, I, I was, I'm such a good liar. At that time, Chrysler and Mercedes had merged, and I, I walked back into my office after I buy the car, and I said, hey, guys, I don't know if you've heard, but this new thing's coming out called a hybrid, which didn't <laughs> exist at the time. And it's a hybrid, Mercedes and Chrysler. And I got the first one in the world, so it's a super cutting-edge, incredible car. I'm never going to have you ride on the inside of it, but go take a look at it. And my car guy's like, this is very strange. When you would ride in the car, the heater would blow the whole time. It was a beat up wobbly Chrysler. And one day we're at a sales conference. I'll just tell you this lastly. After all these humiliating experiences with Velcroing my own car back together, we're at a, uh, a retreat and we leave the retreat, sales retreat. And I have to, my guys are all following me in their cars back to the hotel. 
Well, I get pulled over by the police. And I'm wondering why they pulled me over. I was going to speed limit. So I want you to picture my entire company's parked behind me, right down the block, maybe 100 yards away from me, 20 cars. The police come, then another car, then another car. Now there's four police cars. They make me stick my hands out the window. They handcuff me, put me in the back of a police car. Haven't told me why. And I'm getting arrested in front of my own team. And finally, I asked him, I said, sir, can you please tell me why I'm being arrested? You know, you've read me my rights. I don't know what I, what crime I've committed. I wasn't speeding. And he goes, this is a stolen vehicle. And I go, stolen vehicle? Huh, did I not file the title when I bought this thing? So I'm back in the car about eight, 10 more minutes. And I go, oh my gosh, I wonder if they're running the plates on this car. <laughs> so I said, officer, sir. I said, why do you think the car's stolen? He goes, the plates are stolen. I said, sir, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you, but that's not a Mercedes-Benz that you're looking at. It's a Chrysler LeBaron, like the license plate says this. He goes, what are you talking about? And I said, sir, if you go up to my driver's side door and just pull on it, it's Velcro on the vehicle. <laughs> man looks at me and he goes, is this turning into a DUI boy? I said, no, sir. If you'll go do it, and it's getting dark, so we got the lights on the car, and the three police officers walk up and pull my door off my own car. Pop, pull it off, spins it and throws it in the bushes, and all the police fall out in laughter. And now my entire team is wondering, what the? His car's Velcroed together. This isn't a hybrid. He's been lying the whole time. They finally put me back in the car. We drive back to the hotel, and I'm such a good salesman. I sold that car that night to one of my own guys. I said, this thing's brought me a lot of luck. So the beginning of my business career, I drove a Velcro together car. I'm the only entrepreneur you will ever have on this show, brother, yeah. who can testify that he's driven a Velcro car for two years of his life, trying to look like a big shot when he wasn't one. So that definitely gives you humility when you're going and picking up your own stoplight and Velcroing it back on your car in front of hundreds of people. Ed, I, I, I'm, I have tears in my eyes listening to this story. Beyond you being a great storyteller, what separates you from so many other CEOs and successful people is your willingness to, as I say, own your mess, right? Is to yeah. just be vulnerable, transparent, and make that part of your journey. Why do you think other successful people have to keep their brand, their veneer so perfect and beautiful, and you're able to share the successes and the failures with the same speed? What is... What have you learned about the currency of vulnerability as a lesson and as a, a model for other people? What a great question. I'll give you two answers to that. I love this question because I'm the CEO of a couple different companies, as right. you know. And so forgetting being an entrepreneur, I'm talking about being in the corporate space as a CEO. Uh, vulnerability is what I call like a gateway emotion. So it's a magnifier. When you're willing to be vulnerable, you get magnified emotions from other people, magnified loyalty, magnified work ethic, yeah. magnified bliss, magnified passion. It magnifies all the other emotions when you're willing to be risky enough to be vulnerable and transparent with your people. There's, and the second thing is there's two types of leaders I found. It's the perfect leader who's buttoned up, protects their brand, everything's polished. And they're the type of leader that's sort of like, look at me. So when they walk in a room, it's here I am. I think the most effective leaders when they walk in a room aren't here I am. When they walk in a room, they say, there you are. And I chose early in my career to be a there you are leader, meaning I'm just like you. I'm vulnerable. I should give you hope that you too can succeed, that I'm not some superhuman person. 
that somehow got different answers and different talents than you have. I may have different talents, but they're no more important than yours. And ironically, Scott, I learned that at McKinley Home for Boys. Mm. If I'd have walked in there and said, here I am to these 10 boys who needed love so badly. Well, they've been getting that all their life. They needed somebody to say, there you are and you're amazing and you're special and you're gifted and you matter and I can help you. And I've just felt like as a business leader, I want to walk in every room and say, there you are. You're special. You're valued. You're important. I'm just like you. And so I think it deepens the connection. It deepens all of the other emotions. And I found, to be honest with you, if I had a secret to some of the successes I've had, it's that that's my leadership philosophy from the get-go. I want to be a servant. I know so many of the Covey principles teach this. I want to be a servant leader first, not somebody carrying a flag where everybody looks up to me. Thank you, Ed. Ed, you and I have many mutual friends, one of which is Dr. Daniel Amen. I interviewed him for the second time in the series just this week. And like, like me, Daniel has in, in, instilled in you the power of mindset, right? And that we shouldn't always believe what our mind is telling us. And you, I've, I've heard you speak many times and followed your career on podcast. You talk a lot about the power of of knowing when to listen to your mind and knowing when not to, the power of habits. Will you kind of riff on the topic of the power of understanding your paradigms and your belief systems and when it can help you and when it can hurt you? Well, Dr. Amon's taught you and I both that you don't have to believe your own thoughts. And so one of the things I, what I, I've evaluated that process and, and Dr. Amon and I have discussed this a little bit because it is something that I'm super passionate about. And so if you look at the process of what thinking is, go a little layer deeper. What is thinking? What's thinking as a leader, as an executive, as a father, as a mother? What the process of thinking is the process of asking and answering questions to yourself. That's what a thought is. You're asking and answering a question to yourself. And you process this information very quickly, but that's what a thought is. So how do you change your thinking? You change the quality of the questions you're asking yourself. That changes the answers you get. So as a leader, I'm constantly challenging myself about the kind of questions, the caliber of questions both myself and my executive team are asking because that's going to direct the paradigm. That's going to direct the thought process. So too often we're trying to change mindset instead of changing the baseline thing that alters that, which is the caliber and quality of the questions. If a leader has one responsibility, it may be setting the tone for the caliber and standard of the questions that are asked. We're in this pandemic right now. Not everybody will hear it during that time. But right now, the anxiety, fear, worry that most of us are experiencing, those are answers to questions we're asking ourselves. If you could begin to ask a more quality-based question, and this isn't rah-rah. Legitimately, I'm asking myself daily, what is today trying to teach me? What's the lesson from today? And and how can I grow today? How can we innovate? What are the opportunities? Who Who have I wanted to collaborate forever that I can't reach that's sitting at home right now that would take a call? Or maybe they were a little bit too high on themselves three weeks ago that's now been, you know, humbled to some extent that may be willing to listen to me out of necessity. So I'm asking these quality questions. How can I be more prepared? How can I grow? How can I train for this moment? What's it trying to teach me? And that changes mindset. So when you're struggling with mindset, grab a hold intentionally of you and or your organization. The quality of the questions dictates every, dictates the narrative, dictates what we see, dictates our reticular activating system and our minds of what comes into our awareness and our filter is all through the questions that we ask ourselves. Your, your points there I, remind me of a story you told in your book, I think it's about your mother-in-law. 
I actually read this segment twice because after I read it, I set the book down and said, now why don't I do that more? Was the story about your mother-in-law in terms of how she feels, I think you called it kind of God's love and presence in her life and everything she sees. We recreate that. I thought it was prophetic. I'll do it. I just got to acknowledge something mid-interview because you know I do a lot of these. Probably the best interview I've done. And I know why your show is so successful. It's so obvious. Um, your questions, your preparation are outstanding. And I love to talk about my mother-in-law because I've known her for 45 of the 49 years I've been on Earth. So um, I believe in something in your brain called the reticular activating system. I referenced it in a minute ago. It's a filter. And it brings into your awareness that which you're most committed to or most, most passionate about most focused on. So for example, if you've ever, a good example in our own lives is, and this reticular activating system keeps us sane. It helps us ward out all things that aren't important to us so that we can function. We don't feel the blood in our left ear right now. We don't, we're not cognizant of our breathing. It makes you focus. And um, if you ever bought a new car, you know, you buy a, a blue Lexus, all of a sudden, there's blue Lexuses all over the freeway, isn't there? You could be three lanes over, other side of the freeway, blue Lexus. You're like, parking lot, blue Lexus. They were always there. Why do you see them now? Because they've been programmed into your reticular activating system as important. It literally is your filter. For my mother-in-law, everything's God. She's the most godly, good Christian woman I've ever met in my life. And everything in her life is God. And so she sees a different world than most other people see yet we're walking in the same one. So this is a woman, we always say, be more grateful. Well, where's that come from? It comes from the questions you ask yourself. It comes from what's important to you. It comes from the things that matter most. So for her, everything is God. And so my mother-in-law is grateful and happy through the most basic things. She'll walk outside and the wind will blow just a little bit and cool. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And she sees it and feels it. I take it for granted. Someone holds a door open for her. Aren't you a good man, a godly man? She'll see a beautiful tree. I'm not kidding you, a beautiful tree. Thank you, Lord. She wakes up in the morning. Thank you for giving me another day, Lord. And it's not foofy with her. She sees God everywhere. She sees God in you. She sees human beings differently than most people. She sees the God in them. She sees the blessings in them. She's, she's not a rich woman financially. She's, she's got a rich son-in-law, but she's not a rich woman financially. She has lived so richly and serves people and has had such a beautiful, blissful life. I'm telling you, when my father-in-law passed away, everyone was melting down. It was this tragic moment. And she, she literally told me that this happened through the whole time. She mourned, but she kept focusing on how God delivered her into him into his life when she needed him most and what a blessing he was and how God gave her to him for this entire time. And thank God was so good that he didn't take him with so much pain or a, a, a long-term illness in his case. It, would have, it wouldn't have been something he could deal with. She's, she was blissful and happy and grateful for God, even in the worst of moments. And it's made me realize, what's my filter? What am I looking for? It's all there. She sees it everywhere. And many times in my life, I've walked through the same room, the same wind, by the same tree, met the same people, and missed all of it because of what I wasn't asking myself, because of what my filter wasn't. And so that's a perfect example that Patricia Lewis, my mother-in-law, exemplifies better than anybody that I know. And for people who can't relate to your success or your wealth professionally, you very abundantly say, no, no, I am you. I, I was you, I am you, I'll always be you. You have done some things different than other people have in terms of your work ethic, your habits, your rituals. Will you just kind of walk people through kind of what is your day? Because it's quite simple. N nothing you do 
is um, genius, right? I don't mean to not, not say that you're not genius, but no, you just no. have some great habits. Will you just share some of the pragmatic and practical things you do on a daily basis that keep Ed Milet, the machine, and the, the, the sort of you know, positively contagious person you are going? Sure, and I don't always have that, bro. I believe me, I have negative days too, yeah. Scott. But um, complexity is the enemy of execution. Yeah. So I try to keep everything pretty simple in my life. It doesn't mean that I don't believe in solving complex problems, but my strategies and tactics, my rituals need to be extremely simple. So I have a few. Um, I won't get into the details. They can get a couple of these in the book if they want it, but you don't have to get the book. You can listen to my podcast. It's the same stuff. But, but what I will say is that I have this belief that if I can control the first 30 minutes of my morning and the last 30 minutes of my day, the probability of me having control over the middle of it is increased. Not every day, but I want to control the first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes. I'm a big football fan. I love Bill Belichick. Bill Walsh, and Bill Walsh, the coach of the famous Niners, was the first guy really to script the first 30 plays of the game. They would script them. So no matter what happened, they knew the, the sequence of those 30 plays in a row. And the team would practice them over and over again. He believed that we can control the first 30 plays and the last 30 plays. We have control over the middle of the game most of the time. So that's how I set up my day is I'm really detailed and ritual in the first 30 and second 30. And I do two other things that serve me that have built my confidence and my reliability. I run something called mini days. So I, I started asking, why is a day 24 hours? That was something that was pre-internet. Some, somebody just made it up 24 hours. That's one full day. Well, not for me anymore. My days are eight hours. We've all had a morning where we go, wow, I got more done that morning than I get done in an average day or three days or four days. I thought, well, if I can do that one day, why can't I do it every day? So I compress time frames and I run mini days. So I essentially get 21 days a week because my first day is 6 a.m. to noon. From 6 a.m. to noon, I'm trying to get a full day's work done, full day amount of calls, full social schedule, full emails, full everything. I've shrunk the time down. When you measure something, when, when something is scarce, it becomes more valuable. That's why diamonds are more valuable than paper. So I've made time more scarce. My second day is noon to 6 p.m. So I have another 6 p.m., uh, six-hour window in that part of my day. There's six-hour day, excuse me, six-hour window, noon to 6 p.m. Again, that's a full day. And then my third day is 6 p.m. to midnight. That's full social, business, contacts, email. So I end up getting 21 days a week. So if I'm getting 21 days a week and you get seven and you extend that over a month, two months, five months, five years, I'm going to smoke you in business. And then in those days, I have one standard. My standard is one more. So no matter what I'm doing, I do one more. So if I've got an outcome to do 10 calls in a day, I do 11. If I've got an outcome that I'm going to send off nine emails, I do a 10. If I'm on a treadmill and it's supposed to be 45 minutes, I do 46 minutes. It's just a bizarre standard. I already know I'm going to do it before I do it. But what's happened to me over time is I've increased my self-confidence by keeping the promises I make to myself. And secondly, there's this little part of me where I go, you know what? I'm doing one more all the time. You stack that up over three mini days, over a week, a month, a year. I'm doing things no one's willing to do. I should be getting results no one else is getting. And so I've overrode my lack of personal self-confidence with ironically self-confidence in my work ethics, which then transferred back over to how I feel about myself. So it's, it's many days, it's, um, and it's, it's one more of the two big standards for me, along with controlling the first and last 30 of my day. Ed, beyond that, I've also heard you talk a lot about the time you dedicate to your family. I recently heard you on Maria Shriver and her son Patrick Schwarzenegger's podcast, where I think it was Patrick that said he learned from you, and maybe I'm misquoting him, that you leave your phone in your car 
for the first hour when you arrive home at your house from work. Is that accurate? And, and what impact has that had on your, on your focus, on your family in the evenings? Such a great question, Scott. So yes, it's something I've struggled with. So I'll be candid. When I begin to evaluate my life the last decade, I've thought, you know, what area do I, am I not the most proud of in my own behavior? Doesn't mean I'm not a good father. My children have a world-class mother, thank God. But when I started to measure myself in my family time, if I was being honest, they didn't get all of me. They got a lot of me, but they didn't get all of me. And what I was doing was I was scheduling my family around my work. So every week I'd schedule my entire work and then I'd fit my family in around it. And then when I'd come home, I wasn't present. I'd be on my phone, you know? And the one thing your children want, your spouse wants is you to be present, be where your your feet are planted. And so I couldn't control myself. I just couldn't help it. And so I start, I started the process of, I leave my phone in my car for the first hour when I get home, it's changed my life because now it's not there. I can't look at it. I'm not tempted. And it gives me that, at least that first hour I walk in the door, Hey, dad's home. I'm present. How was your day? What's going on? And I'm fully engaged with my family. And then in an hour, I can go back to that phone. The world's not going to end for that one hour. But I think as an executive, as a leader, we think it would. And what the other thing I changed is now the beginning of the week, I schedule the important family things in my life first. I schedule them, which may sound contrived, state night with my daughter, uh, uh, long walk with my wife, play catch with my son. They're scheduled, which sounds contrived, but now I know they're going to happen. And then the rest of my life is planned around them first. They get priority. My faith in my family is scheduled. Then the rest of my life. So it's just a prior. Show me your planner and I'll show you your priorities. Yeah. And so I've changed the way, by the way, I'm saying this is somebody who works for the, where I learned all this, (laughs) which my original mentor was Stephen Covey. And so if it sounds familiar, so many of the things I'm telling you, I learned from Dr. Covey uh, a long, long time ago. And that's, I've applied those principles to a more modern day strategy with the phone. And like you, my three boys have a world-class mother. It's my wife and her name is Stephanie. And as I told you before you came on air, my wife was reading your book, Max Out Your Life, last night. And she came to me this morning and said, I really loved, loved Ed's book. She said it was easy to read, great nuggets. And she talked specifically about the points you make. And this is our, will be our final point today, is how important it is to set your mind right first thing in the morning and how impactful that is on your day. Would you send our listeners and viewers off with the story about how important it is to start your day right with the right mindset. Well, absolutely, and thank you for today. And for me, it's again, it comes back to the quality of the questions I ask myself. I'm really serious about that topic. And so I have a list of questions I ask myself within about 10 minutes of being awake after some prayer time. And those questions I learned a long, long, long time ago, some of them from Tony Robbins, ironically, and I sort of modified them. But I ask myself every morning, and and by the way, it does get routine. I mean, I have to really force myself to be present when I do this. But I go through in the morning, I get myself ready. Who do I love? And I picture those people that I love. Who loves me? What am I grateful? Who am I grateful for in my life right now? What am I most excited about right now? And why? How does it make me feel? And I just control that about five, six, seven questions every morning. And I do it before I go to sleep at night as well. Hmm. What am I most grateful for? What did I achieve today? What did I learn today? And I kind of cultivate my mindset with those questions because I really believe that this whole idea of mindset has been this really over-talked out topic in personal development, yet very few people have a habit and a ritual and a discipline. They just think, yeah, I'll think positive. Positive thinking is like, hey, there's no weeds, there's no weeds, there's no weeds. No, you got to pick the weeds, right? 
But what you can see is the forest past those weeds if you're looking for them. And so for me, it's the quality of the questions I ask myself every single day. And then I, I just want to say one last thing to everybody. There's a lot of people in the world right now that to some extent feel a little bit helpless, even an executive right now. And I will just tell you that this may sound trite, but it's not. Become more helpful. You can't simultaneously be helpful and helpless at the same time. And so I'm totally, I'm, it may sound pokey, but in that morning, that mindset is, I ask myself this, who can I serve today? Who can I make a difference for? Who haven't I reached out to in a while? How can I be a force for good in somebody's life today? And I'll, you'd be surprised what that does to your state and your power and your gratitude and your focus during that day. And those are the kind of questions I ask myself that hopefully sculpt my mindset for the day every single day. I couldn't agree more whenever I'm feeling down or frustrated with one of my projects or my plan isn't going like I think it should. I find a, almost like a dopamine squirt that goes off in my brain when I reach out to someone who I think is in trouble or needs help. Not, not to position myself as better than them at all, but that, that there's something about you know, our souls and our brains that helps to motivate us to give back to everyone that's in our life. And here's, I think, why that is, brother. Because we were all born to do something great with our lives. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. And it's forgotten. When you're a child, you know this. And over time, these viruses get installed in our mind, if you'll forgive the pun. And maybe we begin to forget that we were put here to do something great in big ways and small ways. And here's the kicker. Some of the greatest things you will ever do in your life are the smallest things. I'll go all the way back full circle. There was a man named Tim at my dad's AA meeting that night. And my dad had been sober a day. And Tim said, can I sponsor you? Can I help you with your sobriety? It's a part of their program. And my dad took him up on that offer. And that same evening, my dad said, I've got a son. And he's at home. And I'm worried about him. He's down on his luck. And that same man, Tim, said, oh, I can get him a job where I work. Have him show up tomorrow morning at McKinley Home for Boys. That was a small gesture in a little room, an AA meeting, 30-something years ago, 33 years ago. And that small gesture that Tim made that may have seemed insignificant to him at that time was one of the greatest gestures he's ever made. But because of that meeting, my dad came home. I work at McKinley. It changed my life to become an entrepreneur and a business leader. So Tim is as responsible for any difference I've made in the world yeah. as I am yeah. because of that small gesture. So don't think it's insignificant that you do small things that may be some of the greatest things you ever do in your life. And Dr. Covey would have called Tim a transition figure, right? Someone that's in our life that makes a, a, an enormous pivot when perhaps we don't even expect it to happen. And tell us, uh, what are you working on next? When, when, when we come out of the pandemic that we're in, I don't mean to make light of that either. What's on the other side for you and your enterprises? What are you excited about? What are you working on? Well, I'm innovating. You know, I'm pivoting right now. I, I realized something that I've been a little bit lax in my ability, believe it or not, as, as much as I use social media, in using technology in my businesses. I've never been more busy the last few weeks because of Zoom, being able to connect with people and being able to interact with them. But what I'm most excited about, ironically, is my career is going to come full circle and I'm going to begin to work with young people more. I started out my career working at McKinley Home, the orphanage, and I feel like my new calling, I'm coaching high-end CEOs and entrepreneurs and political figures, entertainers, athletes for many years. I'm running the businesses I have, but my heart's being called back to work with young people again. And so I'm excited to start to create one of the first of its kind, really large-scale personal development, mindset training, 
for young people. I'm talking 13, 14, 15 year old kids and start to work with them on their thinking, their mindset, maybe back up some of the things their parents are teaching them when they don't listen to their mom and dad. Maybe I can get them to listen to me. And so I think you'll see me working more with youth than you've seen before. And I'm, 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 I'm so excited about that because I feel like I've been called to do it all my life. Ed Milet, your book is Max Out Your Life, highly endorsed by one Stephanie Lofgren Miller from Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you for your time today. It's impossible not to find you on social media. Thanks for your time. I encourage all of our listeners and viewers, buy the book, Max Out Your Life on Amazon, and follow Ed on his podcast and on social media. Appreciate your time today, sir. Nice seeing you again. And my blessing, bro. Thank you. And thanks for your time. What, what a great uh, discussion. I mean, they get better and better, do they not? You got to come and subscribe to On Leadership. If you're not already subscribing, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. You also can access our pod- podcast on any podcast platform. Rank it, rate it, review it. And we'll see you back here next week. Not quite sure how the next guest can top Ed Milet, but we'll sure do our best to uh, um, equal it. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.